Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today I'm joined with Dr. Gary Forsyth again. On April 27th, 2021, Dr. Forsyth joined the show and we had a conversation about the myths and legends of the founding of Rome. Dr. Forsyth joined the show again and on June 7th, 2021, and we had a conversation about the transition period when Rome went from a kingdom to a republic. Dr. Forsyth came back on the show and we chatted on July 18th, and we covered, which I felt was an interesting publishing exercise, we covered Rome, the Roman Republic in the 5th century. So Dr. Forsyth is on the show again, and this episode is going to act very much like a sequel to the last one where today we're going to have a conversation about what was going on in the Roman Republic in the early 4th century. And uh, so we're going to be focusing in predominantly um, in the 399 to 350 BCE period. We may naturally weave in and out uh, of that period, but for the most part, that's where we're going to be having dialogue today. Dr. Forsyth is Associate Professor in the Department of History at Texas Tech University, based in the U.S., He's author of nine books, including authoring the book, A Critical History of Early Rome, From Prehistory to the First Punic War, which was published by University of California Press. And Dr. Forsyth joins the show today from the state of Texas in the U.S. Welcome back on the show, Gary. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. In the uh, last episode, Gary, when we chatted about the Roman Republic in the 5th century, we broke that conversation down uh, in generally two parts. We, we, we chatted for a bit about the, the foreign affairs and then we chatted about domestic affairs. And that seemed to work well for that, for that conversation. Now, in terms of, so we're going to cover the early 4th century, what was happening in Rome in that, that period of time. So mainly 399 down to 350 BCE. Do you want to um, compartmentalize the conversation into domestic and foreign affairs again, or do you want to tackle the conversation more from a chronological perspective? Uh, we, we can go chronologically for this period without any uh, difficulty. We'll basically be doing uh, foreign affairs. There's one major domestic uh, thing that, that we'll talk about, um, but we can uh, proceed in a chronological fashion without any difficulty. Okay. So where do you want to start Start then? So if we, if we say the start of the period, which makes natural sense is around 399, and then we're working our way uh, through, that, through that period, what's the first uh, event or topic point that you want to talk about? Okay, so Rome takes its first somewhat major step in territorial expansion with the conquest of the city of Vey in 396 BC. Up until then, uh, as, as Rome and its Latin neighbors were fighting against the Lycians and the Volscians, um, they, they really they, they made some very modest uh, successes in terms of um, land acquisitions, but nothing really significant happened uh, until Rome uh, all by itself takes on a war against the city of Vey. Um, and Vey was an Etruscan city the Tiber River separated um, uh, Tuscany or Etruria, 
to the north, from Latium to the south, and Rome was located right on the Tiber River, uh, on the edge of Latium, uh, facing uh, Tuscany or, or Etruria. Uh, they was further upstream on the Tiber River, uh, and was probably a state that was a bit smaller than Rome at the time, and uh, the, the, the Romans uh, took on a war against they, and according to the uh, later ancient historical tradition developed by the, the Romans, this war lasted for 10 years, finally ending in 396. Um, and um, uh, there, there's a few things in the war that, that, that seem to be credible. We're still in the very murky period of Roman history when uh, much of what we're told um, can't, can't be fully uh, trusted, but we're, we're gradually getting getting into a, um, a, a clearer area as we move across the uh, fourth uh, century. Um, but anyway, Rome eventually captured Vey uh, and um, annexed its entire territory and uh, thus expanded the Roman territory significantly. Um, and we have some estimates about the size of Roman territory, if you want me to mention uh, those at all. Yeah, let's, uh, it seems natural. So do you want to cover what the uh, geographic demarcation is? And could you also include, uh, Gary, it's kind of a second question, but probably easy enough to include in the response, uh, what, what source or sources um, scholars rely on to know about uh, this invasion? Well, for the 4th century, the century uh, our, our only real major source is Livy. Uh, we have some other scrappy accounts uh, but our really principal source uh, is the Roman historian Livy, who was writing around the time of the, uh, uh, the, the reign of Rome's first emperor, Augustus. Uh, so he's writing centuries later, but he's relying upon earlier Roman historians who had written um, starting around 200 BC and going down to his own day uh, towards the end of the first uh, century uh, BC. But Livy is basically our a principal source of uh, information on this. Um, but anyway, just to give uh, your listeners some idea as to the size of the Roman state at this time, of course, Rome is is not even close to an imperial power at this point. Uh, we, um, we estimate that at the beginning of the Republic, let's say around 500 BC, uh, Roman territory was probably around 800 square kilometers that made a few small acquisitions over the course of the fifth century so that uh, uh, prior to the war against Vey, Roman territory had increased somewhat to uh, probably less than 1,000 square kilometers. Uh, and then with the acquisition of Vey, uh, that significantly increased the size of Roman territory to a little over 1,500 square kilometers. And so the acquisition of Vey increased uh, the size of Roman territory uh, by about 60%. Um, and there, there's two other interesting aspects um, concerning Rome's conquest of they. One in, uh, concerns a matter of religion and the other concerns a matter of uh, the slavery. Okay, can you expand on those two items? Okay, yeah. 
we're told in Livy's account that when the uh, when the Romans were uh, just on the verge of capturing Vey at the very uh, end, end of the war, um, the, the commanding general, uh, Marcus Furius Camillus, who was um, uh, built up in, in the later historic tra tradition as a, as a great Roman uh, commander at, at this time, um, performed a ceremony that the Romans called evocatio, E-V-O-C-A-T-I-O, which literally means calling forth, summoning forth, uh, calling out, summoning out. Um, and this is something that is very rarely mentioned in any of the ancient sources about Roman history. Uh, but uh, we're, we're fairly certain that it must have been uh, used by the Romans on a very regular basis, uh, especially during the Republic uh, as, uh, as Rome was uh, conducting it, its ma major wars. Anyway, this was a religi religious ceremony in which the commanding general uh, uttered a formal prayer uh, in which he um, uh, addressed the um, uh, major protective divinity of the land or the place that the Romans uh, were uh, fighting against. Um, and the prayer went something like this. We actually have a, a quotation of this prayer that was supposedly uh, used uh, by, Scip by uh, Scipio Aemilianus in 146 BC at the time that the Romans uh, captured Carthage at the end of the Third Punic War. Um, and anyway, according to this source, the prayer was something like this. I don't have that uh, uh, memorized verbatim, but it's pretty close. Uh, whether thou be God, God or goddess uh, in, in whose protection is the land blank, if you fill in the blank, uh, I beg and beseech that you abandon the sacred places of this land, uh, that, that you shed dread, fear, and forgetfulness upon its people, and I beg and beseech that you come to Rome and receive worship in our sacred places. And I promise that I will build a temple for you. And I ask for your protection for me, my army, and for the Roman people. Uh, that's, that's basically how the prayer went. And it was basically a religious way in which the Romans attempted to deprive the, the enemy state of any kind of divine protection and to increase um, the um, uh, divine uh, protection uh, in favor of the, uh, of the Roman people in, in, in the Roman state. So that's uh, one very important thing. And uh, the, the, the chief uh, protective divinity of they was the divinity uh, whom the Romans called Juno, J-U-N-O, um, in Etruscan, her name was Uni, U N I, um, and uh, she uh, eventually received uh, a, a fairly significant uh, temple in Rome on the Aventine uh, Hill. So that was one major aspect of, of the war that we're fairly certain is uh, absolutely uh, historical. And it's the earliest reference and documented use that we have in the ancient sources of the Romans using this practice of evocatio. The deity that you mentioned, or deities, 
it, it, is that considered the same deity? You'd mentioned Juno, but you'd mentioned another one, which I, th I, th I think you mentioned that was the an, an Etruscan deity. Are they considered the same deity, but they're worse? Yes. But it's yes. okay. Yes. Bam. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The Etruscan called her Uni, and the Romans called her Juno. But yeah, they, they were regarded as the same divinity. Okay. Um, what's known about why Rome had this military conflict of they? And you mentioned as well there was. Uh, in, enslaving people was a um, was one of the two points as well. That's in regards to the military conflict. Uh, yeah, we're, we're, the, the thing about the ancient world, and uh, I guess you'd say all the way up, and even including modern times, um, is the uh, uh, sort of uh, constant phenomenon of warfare between states. Um, we, we we happen to live in a time in which. We now live in very large nation states, and, and we, we uh, have conflicts going on around the globe all the time, of course. Um, and this this phenomenon of warfare between neighboring states was uh, was chronic during the ancient Mediterranean um, time period. And the, the one thing that makes us somewhat different is the fact that uh, before the Roman Empire comes along. It establishes uh, its a sway over a huge area. Um, they, they, uh, the, the whole um, region of, of the Mediterranean area basically consisted of a large number of very small states. And it, it, it's hard for us to imagine what it would have been like living in that, that situation of uh, having so many small states and many of these states were constantly fighting with each other. So it, if you can just sort of imagine wherever you happen to live, uh, um, and uh, you think, just trying to imagine that, that the city or the town in which you live would be at war from time to time uh, with, with, a, with a nearby city just a few miles away or something like that. Um, and, and it must, must have made life really very difficult. And, and one of the that the most um, threatening thing for individuals was the real potential that if, if, if the community in which they live went to war and happened to lose and lose significantly, um, that the person might wind up uh, either being killed, of course, uh, if there were adult males because they were uh, fighting in, in, in the army, but they, they could also be killed as civilians. Um, but the, uh, the, the other real major threat was enslavement because it was uh, uh, the common feature of this kind of warfare that if one state succeeded in really dominating over the other militarily, then it would, it would often uh, seize a significant portion of its population and reduce them to slavery. And so the, uh, so there was a real threat uh, for people uh, for centuries and centuries, uh, losing their, their own personal autonomy and freedom uh, as a result of this kind of interstate uh, warfare. Uh, and uh, th this was the major means by which uh, slavery uh, existed uh, for uh, many centuries uh, throughout this area uh, as a result of, of these wars and successful uh, victorious uh, communities uh, taking portions of the population of a defeated state and, and reducing them uh, to slavery. 
and we, we think that the, the conquest of they uh, probably did result in uh, a sizable number. We, we can't put any figure at all on it, but uh, in terms of what had been going on before in, in Roman society, let's say over the course of the previous fifth century, there probably hadn't been very much of that. Um, but uh, with, with this uh, fairly significant war that the Romans were waging against Vey, uh, if they uh, reduced um, even a sizable portion of its population to slavery at the end of the war, then this would have probably marked the first really major acquisition of uh, slaves in, in, in Roman society. So in a sense, the, the war against Vey may have been Rome's first major step towards becoming a, a slave-owning society. Okay. And do scholars believe, Gary, that this was the beginning of Rome's expansions through conquests and some of the different items that you described there? Or is it believed that these kind of military campaigns were already occurring earlier than this point, but they weren't showing up in the in the records as as confidently. Well, there, there seems to be a, a um, uh, some some changes going on because the, uh, the living records that is during the, the war against Vey that the Romans increased the size of its uh, cavalry force and also for the first time instituted uh, pay for the soldiers uh, serving in, in the army. So the, the, those, those are two, if, if those are accurate and there's no reason to really doubt them. Um, those are also indications that, that, that Rome is uh, becoming a, a more organized uh, state. And one of the things that we see happening um, during the middle republic, during the, uh, the the last stages of the, the early republic and on into the middle republic, uh, is how Rome um, deals with the whole phenomenon of um, state organized warfare. Uh, what, what what the Romans do is warfare becomes such an incredibly integrated aspect of Roman life and Roman society, especially for the male uh, citizen population uh, and um, the, the, the Roman state uh, to a very, very high degree um, over the course of, uh, let's say, the, the, the fourth and on into the third century succeeded in uh, uh, systematizing, organizing, and fully integrating all aspects of warfare into Roman society to, to, to make it an integral aspect of the way in which Roman life was conducted. And it's this uh, a rather, I, I think, rather unique way uh, in, in which the Romans dealt with, uh, with warfare that uh, helps explain uh, Rome's uh, very unique uh, history during the Republic in uh, conducting one war after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next, that ultimately results in, in Rome's uh, acquisition of the Mediterranean Empire. So... So you covered their conquest of Vey, that military campaign. You said that that ended in 396. Which, uh, what, what do you want to cover next as we work through the uh, first half of the century? 
the, the next major thing is uh, uh, comes in 390 uh, with the Gallic capture of Rome. There, there's a few small events. Uh, uh, Livy records the Romans established uh, assigning treaties with two smaller communities uh, further to the north of Bay, uh, indicating that, that Rome is uh, after a, con a conquers Bay and uh, continues to, to sort of move on up the Tiber, as it were, uh, and making alliances rather than carrying out warfare against two communities. So we, we see Roman expansion Se seems to be at, at the stage now where it's it, it's moving steadily. Uh, but 390 is the year in which uh, the Romans suffer uh, the, the first really big um, setbacks. Uh, and, and this um, this uh, resulted from um, a marauding army of, uh, of people that the Romans called Gauls, G-A-U-L-S, uh, in, in Latin, and they were known as Gali, G-A-L-L-I. Um, in, in Greek sources, they're referred to as Celts. Um, K-E-L-T-S or C-E-L-T-S, however you want to transliterate it. Um, and th these people uh, occupied, the, they, they, were, uh, they were not organized into city-states, a lot like the Greeks uh, and the Romans and the Etruscans and uh, uh, many other peoples throughout the Mediterranean area at this time. They, they occupied uh, a huge area at, at, at this time, uh, not only the, the area of what's now France, uh, but all, all of, of parts of Germany, uh, into Austria, uh, and uh, much of the area north of the Danube River. Uh, and over the course of the uh, preceding century, the 5th century, uh, Gallic tribes had um, slowly crossed the, the, the Alps mountains uh, from Central Europe uh, into the northern Po Valley of Italy and had uh, completely occupied that whole area and had pretty much pushed out the, the native populations uh, of that region. Um, and one of the uh, uh, aspects of a Celtic or a Gallic society was they were extremely warlike uh, and had this habit of uh, carrying out the marauding raids upon their, their neighbors. Um, and uh, that usually was sort of the first steps in, in Celtic uh, colonization or takeovers of, uh, of, of new areas. And that's what had happened uh, previously in reference to the, uh, the Po Valley up in Northern Italy. Uh, and then they had, had now, uh, apparently what, what happened now was that in, uh, a huge army of these uh, marauding uh, uh, tribal uh, warriors uh, crossing Apennine Mountains uh, from the Po Valley into Etruria um, and the Romans got involved in, in the, the conflict there, uh, and the Gauls eventually set their sights on Rome uh, and um, attacked the, the, the Romans. There was a major battle that fought um, a few miles north of Rome uh, at a tributary called the Alia, A-L-L-I-A, that flowed into the Tiber, so this is known as the Battle of the Alia um, in 390. And the Gauls defeated the Romans uh, and uh, moved on then into the city, uh, occupied the city, uh, according to the later sources, uh, for several months, and, and then eventually uh, departed after they had succeeded in extracting a huge ransom of gold uh, from the Romans. Uh, so that this, this, this was a really uh, terrible uh, thing uh, for the Romans uh, to suffer 
uh, at, at this time. Uh, and it was such a traumatic experience for the Romans uh, that they um, uh, remembered for centuries um, the, the, the day of this defeat, the, the day of the Alia. Um, and, they, and even down into early imperial times, um, they recorded on calendars um, this, this day, uh, this is the day of the Alia uh, that, that occurred on, on the July 18th. Um, so um, that, that was a, a really huge uh, setback uh, for, the, for the Romans. But eventually the calls left. That, that was sort of their, their nature in their early stages of attempting uh, to conquer the area. They'd carry out these uh, attacks uh, and they were really uh, quite frightful uh, warriors. Um, and um, this was such a traumatic experience for the Romans that henceforth they, they developed this concept of what they call a Gallic tumult or a tumultus Gallicus in, in Latin. Uh, and what, what it meant was it was a sort of a declaration, a formal official declaration of a state of emergency. Um, and so uh, in, in uh, later uh, generations, uh, whenever the Romans uh, faced a possible uh, attack by a huge uh, Gallic army that the state would, would uh, declare uh, that, that, uh, that they were now in a state of tumultus gallicus. And what it meant was that all um, exemptions that people might have for military service, like say age or infirmity or whatever, all of those um, were set aside during the time of a Gallic tumult. Uh, and military commanders of the Roman state had an absolutely free hand in raising as many uh, citizens as military forces as they saw fit, and uh, they would ignore any uh, any pleas of uh, military exemption um, because it was thought to be uh, such a, a dangerous threat uh, to the Roman state. So it had a major impact upon uh, uh, Roman thinking and institutions uh, throughout Roman history from that point onwards. Is it known how long the Gauls were um, were in 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 Rome? Well. Um, Libya says they were there for several months. I don't remember if he gives a number. Um, according to some sources, they didn't leave until February. So they they, uh, they, they took over in mid-July, and they didn't leave until about mid-February. Whether that's true or not, we, we really don't know. But yeah, they, they probably hung around for a while uh, and uh, uh, basically uh, grabbed anything movable. The sort of major aspect of, of these Gallic attacks was uh, to defeat an enemy, uh, and, and then make off with as much movable stuff as, as they possibly could. And this, this included people, uh, cattle, uh, other sorts of farm animals, like anything of value, any, any uh, sort of precious metals or usable objects or whatever, uh, that, that they would just plunder about anything uh, and, and then move on. Um, so exactly how long they were there, we, we, we don't really know. Um, but anyway, um, it was a, a very a major event uh, in um, the, the, the way in which the, uh, Livy uh, deals with this, um, um, the, the Roman recovery is rather interesting because um, we're fairly certain that, that what ultimately happened was that the Roman state bought off the, the, the Gauls, basically said, okay, uh, we want you out of here so we'll raise up as much money as we can 
give it to you and then just get out of here and leave us alone. Um, and that's probably what happened. So, so in a sense, the, the Romans have paid a ransom uh, to the Gauls. Well, the, the later Roman historians didn't like the idea that that Rome that uh, became the great Mediterranean state um, uh, bought its way out of this uh, situation. Uh, and so they, they, they came up with this, uh, <laughs> in, in Livy's account, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, almost laughable uh, situation in which the, the Romans, here's how he described it. Uh, the, the Romans decide, okay, we're gonna, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you this, this ransom uh, and, and then you'll leave. So um, the, the, the Romans are in the, the, the representatives of the Roman state and the Gauls are, are in the forum uh, and they're weighing out the, um, the, the gold um, to be paid to the Gauls, the price that they had agreed upon. And as they're doing so, they, the Gallic chieftain uh, takes his sword. They're wearing this out, of course, uh, on, on balance scales. And, and the Gallic uh, commander uh, takes his sword and lays it on, on, on one side of the balance uh, scales to make it heavier. Uh, and uh, it basically at the last minute saying, okay, you're going to pay an additional amount of gold equivalent to the, to the weight of my sword. Uh, and, and the Romans objected to that and said, hey, we didn't agree to that. Uh, and his, his response in Livy is two words. Why, that's V-A-E, victis, V-I-C-T-I-S, meaning woe to the vanquished. Uh, basically saying you, you, can't, uh, you, you can't object, you're, you're the defeated. Uh, you, have to, you have to take what we dish out to you. Um, and just as that's going on, uh, Rome's great uh, military hero of the day, supposedly, Camillus, arrives on the scene with, with a fresh Roman army, uh, fights the Gauls right there in the forum, defeats them, uh, and takes away the gold that the Romans were about to pay to the Gauls. And so Camillus, uh, according to this version, saves the, the Romans from the, the uh, uh, ignominy of, of, of ransoming of the city uh, to the Gauls. But we're fairly certain that that's a, that's a later uh, invention to uh, spare the Roman state and the, the, the shame of having to uh, have uh, uh, bought their way out of this situation. Okay. So have you treated, Gary, the, uh, this, this item, do you think, sufficiently, given, given uh, the amount of time that we have for this episode today? Pardon me? Do you think that you've treated the, um, the, the sack of Rome by the Gauls oh, yeah. sufficient oh, yeah. for the time? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So uh, there's been, I guess just one last little thing here is that um, there's been a lot of uh, effort devoted by archaeologists who've conducted excavations um, in and around Rome to find evidence of um, the Gallic capture of the Rome because uh, the, uh, the later Romans uh, had the idea that, 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 that the Gauls had done a really thorough job of burning the whole place down. Um, but so far, there hasn't been any convincing archaeological evidence uh, to um, uh, to prove that. And, and one of the one of the things that um, um, is sort of significant in, in dealing with all of these matters in, in, involving uh, ancient times is the concept that I call archaeological invisibility, or, or things that are archaeological invisible. Um, archaeologists only succeed in discovering what has happened to remain in a material fashion at a site from a previous occupation. And there's just lots and lots and lots and lots of things that we humans do that do not leave any kind of material trace um, in the ground. Um, 
And so uh, archaeologists only uncover certain kinds of, of information. Um, <clears throat> so the, um, uh, the, the fact that we don't find any, so far anyway, we haven't uh, uncovered any uh, clear evidence of, um, from archaeology of the Gallic uh, occupation of Rome uh, really doesn't mean uh, much of anything because of so many things, like I say, simply go um, uh, to be invisible in, in the archaeological uh, record. Okay. So that, that's the last thing on, on the Gallic capture rule. Okay, Gary. What do you want to cover next? Okay, well, um, in the um, previous lecture that, that I did uh, covering uh, the, the fifth century, I, I did talk about this phenomenon of uh, military tribunes and consular power. Uh, that began in 444 and went down to 367 uh, BC. Uh, and uh, ultimately, by uh, <clears throat> by the time of the war against Vey, the, um, the the consulship had uh, uh, basically been replaced by the Romans electing every year uh, boards of uh, military tribunes with consular power, and that that continues all the way down to 367. Um, now it's pretty clear that that Rome. Although this uh, defeat by the calls was was pretty uh, uh, traumatic, uh, that, that the Romans get back on their feet right away, <clears throat> and they're, they're back on track in terms of uh, sort of resuming their, their attempt to expand the, the territory of the of the Roman state. We've got a, a number of indications of this um, in Livy's narrative. Um, uh, <clears throat> by, at the time that, that the Roman Republic began, around 500, it was pretty clear that that Rome was the largest of the uh, uh, 12 or so uh, Latin communities uh, in, in Latium. Um, there, there were two other states that were somewhat sizable. Uh, one was called Praeneste, P-R-A-E-N-E-S-T-E, -E, modern day Palestrina, if anyone's uh, traveled to modern day uh, Italy, um, it's not too far from Rome. Uh, and the other state was the Latin state of Tibur, T-I-B-U-R. Uh, its modern name is Tivoli. That's the place where uh, the Emperor Hadrian later on uh, made a sort of a suburban villa, uh, a state, great big uh, palatial area uh, that maybe some of your listeners have, have, have visited. Uh, but anyway, what we uh, see happening uh, during the, let's say, the 380s, 370s, 360s, 350s uh, is um, uh, Rome is. Uh, uh, attempting to take over uh, more areas, uh, just a little bit by little bit, it's, it's pretty small. Um, but one of these states, Primeste, uh, attempts to challenge Rome's rise to be a, a bigger, more dominant state among the Latins. Uh, and this manifests itself in, in the, the year 380, when Primeste put together a uh, <clears throat> sort of a uh, coalition of nine communities that he says uh, and um, the, the Romans to deal with this appointed a, a man to be dictator but he marched out against uh, Prentice and its uh, member states and defeated them and broke up the, um, the, the coalition so uh, this is an indication that, that Rome is becoming a larger state and it's being seen so by its Latin neighbors and, and that they're beginning to see Rome as sort of a major threat that might eventually uh, dominate all of them, uh, and, and they're, they're pushing back. Uh, and then we have a similar uh, episode in 358 involving Tibor, the other somewhat sizable Latin state at this time, 
uh, and Tibor at this time in an attempt to sort of fend off uh, Rome's growing uh, power in, in the region, enlisted the aid of Gallic mercenaries. Um, so <laughs> this, this indicates that, 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 that Tibor saw Rome uh, as, a, uh, as a bigger threat uh, to itself uh, than, than Gallic raiders. Um, and in 358, another Roman dictator was appointed to deal with this threat. He goes out and he defeats uh, Tibor, uh, and um, uh, that, that, that's the end of that of, of that uh, threat. So we have a number of, of episodes like like that, um, and uh, there's several others that, that give us indications of Rome making very minor uh, acquisitions of, of territory. But the last major episode that I want to cover. Uh, for the for the fourth century, involves the, the one major uh, domestic uh, event. Uh, oh, this... before sorry, Gary. Before we go there, just before we switch switch gears to the domestic, I want to follow up then on a couple brief brief things with the with the foreign affairs. Um, the what's the level of veracity that scholars put uh, in this in this period then on some of these other military campaigns when um, based on what's in the records what's the level of veracity that scholars apply to it uh, well um, we're, we're in a period where we can probably trust uh, sort of the, the, the major big things uh, like like this um, threat from Prineste the threat from Tibor those are probably correct uh, in, in the, the case of um, uh, Prineste, we're told, Olivia tells us that at the end of the, uh, the dictator's campaign against Praeneste, he came back to Rome um, and as a uh, um, victory monument, uh, he um, um, placed a, a statue like in the temple of uh, uh, Jupiter Optimus Maximus, the, the biggest temple in, in Rome. Uh, and at the at the foot of the statue, he placed a plaque recording his victory over Prineste and the Nine Towns. And, and Livy actually gives his version of this uh, dedicatory inscription. Uh, and, and we are now in a period in which we are now beginning to get that kind of uh, documentary uh, evidence. Um, it, it, it becomes more frequent as we move across the fourth century. Um, and so we're, we're basically in a time period in which as, as we move across the fourth century, things are becoming uh, a bit clearer uh, and more historical in, in Libby's narrative bit by bit. Um, but it's really not until we get down to the uh, period war that begins in 280 uh, BC that, that Rome finally fully emerges from this uh, sort of dim twilight period uh, of uh, sort of quasi-history uh, and, and finally comes into the full light of uh, historical uh, daylight, uh, as it were. Uh, but, but we see this uh, sort of gradual, uh, you can sort of think of it as, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're in the early morning, before the sun comes up, the first year in darkness, uh, and then as, as the time moves towards dawn, it starts to lighten up, uh, and then you see the first rays of the sun coming over the horizon, and then eventually 
the sun is there in, in all of its uh, brightness. That, that's sort of what's going on as we move across the fourth uh, century until we get down to the Pyrrhic War. By the time we're at the Pyrrhic War, the sun has risen uh, and it's bright, uh, and we're dealing with, with actual uh, historical uh, reality. Um, but in the case of um, the, the war against uh, Tibor in 358, um, I have no difficulty in, in accepting the historicity of that basic event. Uh, and the dictator, once again, according to Livy, uh, commemorated his victorious campaign by erecting a kind of victory monument on, on the Capitoline Hill, um, which would have stood in, in later times as a testimony to that campaign. But what we have in Livy, when he describes the actual military campaign against Timur, uh, what we have is a fictitious historical battle narrative in which the in which um, uh, Livy or one of his um, historical predecessors, uh, in, in order to uh, enliven his narrative with an exciting uh, battle narrative, uh, has um, has uh, taken a really famous battle in recent history, and that is of the late Republic, the Battle of Aquae Sexii uh, of uh, 102 BC, won, won by Marius against the um, uh, Teutones, uh, and basically adapts that, that, that whole scenario uh, and, and puts it back in, into the fourth century and applies it to the conflict between uh, Rome and Tibor. So we're still very much in the period in which uh, we're dealing with a possibility of uh, uh, fabrications in, in various ways, along with having bits and pieces of uh, authentic information. So it's a very complex mixture of things. Okay. And we don't have to spend much time on this next question because I want to give us enough time uh, on the domestic affairs uh, in this episode. Um, can you expand on uh, for a moment, Gary, what the, what the coalition was that you mentioned? I, I want to clarify if Rome was part of a coalition in this period of time. Um, yeah, if we go back to the 5th century, and I, I talked about that in, in that in that episode, uh, the Romans were fighting against uh, two principal peoples, the, the Iquians and the Volscians. Uh, but it wasn't just the Romans against the Iquians and the Volscians. It was the Romans plus their Latin neighbors. Um, and uh, modern historians use the term Latin League uh, to refer to uh, a, a kind of uh, cultural... Uh, and um, uh, religious and legal and, and military uh, cooperation between Rome and the other Latin states uh, at this time. Whenever they, they, they celebrated every spring, all of these Latin communities got together and celebrated a major religious festival on what was called the Alban Mount um, in, in Latium. It's a, sort of an extinct volcano area. Um, and uh, so they, they, they had that they spoke a common language. Uh, they, they, they worshiped the same gods by the same names. Uh, and so when Latium, which is a relatively small plain area, began to be encroached upon by these uh, hill folk, the, the Iquians from one direction, the Volskians from another direction, it was natural for the Latin uh, peoples, all, all of the communities, including Rome, to sort of band together uh, militarily and, and try to fend off these, uh, these invaders. And they eventually did. Uh, so what's what's going on in the fifth century, and uh, uh, by the end of the fifth and the beginning of the fourth century, is that 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 Rome is working with its Latin neighbors to fend off these common threats 
but at the same time that the Romans are engaged in sort of their own um, in their own plans of expansion. So there's so there's sort of tension there between the the Latins and the Romans. Sometimes they're working together against a common threat. Sometimes uh, uh, that the Romans are uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, expand at, at the expense of some of their smaller Latin neighbors. And so this is something that went on uh, for quite some time until we finally get down to the Latin word 340-338. Was uh, Tibur part of the coalition? Yes, yeah, Tibur and Praeneste were the, were the two larger <clears throat> Latin communities that, that uh, that they weren't as large as Rome, we think, um, but, but they were sizable. Most of the Latin states were really pretty small. Um, Rome was the, was the only really big one, and that had to do with the fact that it was on the Tiber River and commanded a crossing of, of the Tiber River. Um, Tibor and Praeneste were the only exceptions in terms of being somewhat sizable Latin states. And so uh, they were the only ones that, that uh, had any ability, uh, as we see from these two episodes in, in Libby, from sort of pushing back against uh, Rome, um, growing at the expense of its Latin neighbors. We have probably, uh, to do a, do a time, time check, we probably have about eight minutes left, Gary, to, uh, to, to keep the episode under 60 minutes for everyone. Do you think we have enough time to cover the domestic affairs? I hope so. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. Um, um, the, the only major sort of domestic um, um, event that, that occurs during this period of the, let's say, first half of the fourth century uh, <clears throat> involves the years, well, uh, preceding uh, 367, 366. Um, and we, we are now at what I regard as uh, one of the most fantastic historical fabrications of Roman history that, that we have in living. Um, uh, here, here's how Livy explains things. Um, in the year three six, uh, in the year three seventy six BC, uh, two of the ten tribunes elected for that year uh, were um, uh, guys named uh, Licinius and Sextius, and they were hell bent on making sure that um, the. Uh, the plebeians had access to the consulship. Now, at this time, the consulship hadn't been in, in effect for, well, the, the, we have two consuls, two consulate pairs back in 393, 392, but uh, since uh, 406, I think it is, we have nothing but boards of military tribunes. Um, and this was supposedly one of the major uh, conflicts between uh, patricians and plebeians over the course of the fifth century on into the fourth century. That the patricians were the only people elected to the consulship and no plebeians could be elected to the office. Okay, so in 376, these, this pair of tribunes decide that uh, now they're finally going to make access to the consulship a reality. So they use their veto, uh, 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 the veto powers in their, their office uh, to block everything. Uh, until they, they get what they want on, on this matter. Uh, and they succeed in, in blocking everything to such an extent that for six full years, from three, uh, uh, 376 down to 371, or, or maybe it's 375 to 370, but I don't remember the exact years, 
that there's a six year period in living in which there are no other officials elected in their own state. Um, and, and so there's a, there's a period of, uh, of no chief magistrates elected. Uh, and then, and then they, they go, and they, these tribunes get elected year after year, they get reelected for 10 consecutive years until finally in 367, um, their obstructionist uh, tactics succeed in forcing the patricians to concede uh, to the plebeians and allow the um, uh, plebeians to be elected to the office of, um, of, of, of the consul. Um, and so we have a major reorganization of the Roman state in 367, 366. The, the, uh, the office of the military tribune with consular power is finally ended for the uh, last time in 367. And then in 366, uh, consuls once again start being elected every year, uh, along with uh, two, uh, three other new officials, a praetor, who's basically sort of a judge official in Rome, and two other somewhat minor officials known as Kuro Ediles. Um, and, uh, <clears throat> and from this point onwards, there, there's uh, a power-sharing agreement between the patricians and the plebeians that every year when they hold the elections for the consulship, uh, a number of patricians compete against each other for one of the uh, positions as consul and a number of uh, prominent uh, plebeians uh, compete with each other uh, to hold the other uh, position of consul. And so from 366 onwards, we get what we could call a sort of power-sharing arrangement of the consulship between the patricians uh, and the uh, plebeians. All right, so that, that's the story as told in living. Uh, now, the idea of a pair of tribunes being elected for 10 consecutive years is absolutely unbelievable. Um, we have no evidence of tribunes being consecutively re-elected uh, to their office until we get to the late republic with, with the Gracchi. Um, so the, the, the notion of, of 10 years of consecutive tribunation office uh, is just a, 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 it's just Fantastic. Uh, and then also the idea that, that Rome went without elected officials other than, let's say, the tribunes for, for, uh, for six years as Livy has it. That is also just totally fantastic. That, that is unbelievable. Um, so what we have here is we've got a, um, um, one, of, one of the major aspects of um, uh, Roman domestic affairs during the early Republic was supposed to have been this conflict between these two classes of citizens, patricians and plebeians. Um, and we don't really know when the distinction between patrician and plebeian actually came about. Uh, according to the later tradition, when the Republic began in 509, the, the uh, consuls were all patrician. And it's not until 366 that the first plebeian gets elected to the office of consul. Um, we don't know when the distinction was made. Um, uh, the, the ancients thought that it was created at the time of Romulus, the first king. Uh, and and uh, some modern historians think that the distinction between patrician and plebeian existed at the beginning of the Republic. Uh, but the evidence that we have from the names in the uh, uh, consul list uh, from 509 down to uh, 445 uh, clearly disproved that because we've got the names of uh, 
obvious plebeian families uh, for that period. Uh, so I think that the distinction between patrician and plebeian was a fairly late phenomenon. I don't think it probably uh, came into existence until probably the late fifth century. Uh, and that what we have in the um, in, in Livy and other narratives that uh, describe domestic conflict going on between patricians and plebeians for the fifth century on down into the fourth century is, is largely a later uh, invention. Uh, and that what we have in Livy concerning this major uh, domestic crisis uh, from 376 to 367 is, is basically uh, uh, a later historical a fabrication and what's really happening in 367, 366 is that the Romans finally decide that they're going to reorganize the chief offices of the Roman state. Um, and instead of electing the boards of uh, six military prisons with the consular power every year as they have been doing for decades, they're now going to replace that with the differentiated uh, and well-defined functions in, in which they're going to elect five officials henceforth uh, two consuls, a praetor, two curl ediles, and since the distinction between patrician and plebeian had now come into existence, they, they now decide upon this sort of power-sharing relationship between um, prominent uh, plebeians who are just as prominent and as rich as the uh, as the patricians. Um, uh, but, but in the later times, it, this this was seen as a, a sort of a major landmark in what uh, many uh, modern historians. Uh, are happy to view as a kind of a ongoing law and civil rights movement, as it were, uh, in, in Roman history uh, between the haves and the have-nots. And you and I chatted about doing an episode sometime on, on offices, so spending um, an entire episode speaking about offices. So um, if we do that episode sometime, some of this, um, some of these offices will probably, I assume, come into that conversation as well. And absolutely, yes, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and we're doing another episode sometime soon on the next half of the fourth century, right, Gary? Yeah. Yep. All right, I look forward to it. Uh, thanks for coming on the show again, Gary. It's always great chatting with you. Okay, I loved it. So everybody, the book that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Forsyth wrote, and it's one of several books, as, I, as I've mentioned, it is entitled A Critical History of Early Rome from Prehistory to the First Punic War. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Gary, as always, and as always, everyone listening, I wish you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. In the introduction, I mentioned some previous episodes where Dr. Forsyth joined the show and we had conversations about related Roman historical topics. I will drop links to those episodes for convenience in the show notes associated to this episode at IthacaBound.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.